0: Welcome back to The Pacific Century, a Hoover Institution podcast on China, America, the Indo-Pacific, and the fate of the 21st century. I'm your host, Misha Oslin, and today I am very happy to be uh, joined by two fellow Japanologists. For those of you who know my prior work, it may seem a little uh, surprising that we haven't talked as much about Japan on the show, but arguably Japan is becoming even more important in the Indo-Pacific than it has been for the past several decades. And so I am particularly pleased to be joined by two old colleagues, Shihoko Goto and Yuki Tatsumi. Shihoko is the Director for Geoeconomics and Indo-Pacific Enterprise and Deputy Director of the Asia Program at the Wilson Center here in Washington. Yuki Tatsumi is a Senior Fellow and Co-Director of the East Asia Program and Director of the Japan Program at the Stimson Center also here in Washington. So, Yuki and Shihoko, welcome to the Pacific Century.
1: Thank you. Thanks for having us. Great to be here.
0: Well, it's it's great to have you guys here and great to talk about Japan. Uh, some of the Listeners may have heard the interview that I did with um, Noah Snyder, uh, who is the Economist Bureau Chief in Tokyo, did that a few months ago. Um, we've had um, uh, some Japanese experts. We had the Japanese defense minister at the time, um, Kono on the show a few years ago. Um, but really haven't haven't spent nearly as much time talking about Japan. And so what I'd like to do today is actually talk about foreign policy, which is an area that both of you are experts in, and longtime Japan watchers, um, educated in Japan, obviously travel regularly when when you're allowed to in the new COVID era, but um, written extensively on Japan's foreign policy. And I think that we're in really uh, a new era uh, of Japanese foreign policy, and one that it it behooves Washington policymakers to really pay a lot more attention to. So there's a lot of different things uh, that we can talk about, but I think we have to start with the legacy of former Prime Minister Shinzo Abe. Um, Abe, who was in office his his second time from 2012 uh, to 2020, so an an unprecedented eight-year period as Prime Minister, um, was to some a controversial figure, uh, but really in in some ways, almost radically reformed uh, Japanese foreign policy, or did he? And so let me start with you, Yuki. Can you, can you talk about uh, what you see as Abe's legacy in foreign affairs? What did he accomplish? What was most important uh, and what did he leave undone?
1: Thank you, Misha, for having me. And I'm um, really happy to talk about these issues um, with the fellow Japanologists as well. Um, so when it comes to uh, former Prime Minister Abe, I would say the biggest legacy that he, he left for his uh, successor to try to emulate, uh, which uh, incumbent uh, Prime Minister Kishida is certainly doing, is to really maintain, put Japan at the uh, very forefront of the, uh, I guess, the discussion on what the new world order must, should look like. Um, if you would call Misha, when he first came back as a prime minister and that he, he came back to Washington as, as the prime minister for the second time, he did the uh, speech that um, at CSIS where he talked about how Japan will, he, he's determined that, that uh, he will keep Japan as a first rate country and what that means for him. And what that means for him was that Japan will be a defender of the, defender of the commons uphold, defender of the universal values, and also defender of the uh, international liberal order, which vast majority of the world has been benefited from since uh, 1945. And, and I think he really put out that new framework. It was very different from the uh, what was called Yoshida Doctrine, what, which was prominent up until he laid out that, um, he laid out that key principles, which is you know, econ- economic development first, and then security policy you know, takes more, more or less the back seat.
0: And that was from the 1950s. That was 19, 1950s, former yes, minister. from a form,
1: former prime minister, Shigeru Yoshida. Yes. So I think a prim, um biggest uh, legacy that the prime minister Abe leaves for us is that kind of re- replace that almost like Japan-centric, right? If you think about the Yoshida doctrine, it's very focused on Japan's development as a country. So... If anything, I think Abe really moved the scale perspective of the Japanese foreign policy from one that was embodied in the Yoshida doctrine, which was very focused on Japan's the, Japan's own development, the Japan's own security, into more of a Japan in the more interconnected world and what kind of role Japan play in it and how he thought Japan should play in it. So I think that is the, really the biggest legacy. So,
0: so let me ask you at, at that point, because that's actually a really uh, interesting sort of meta assessment uh, and and one that I that I hadn't thought of, because so often we look at the narrow policy specifics, right? That's what DC does is it often looks at the policy, like what, what mm-hmm. specifically is done. So let me a- actually ask you that. What were some of the specifics that translated from that big global vision, grand vision, some might even, dare we call it a grand strategy, into what the Japan of 2022, or let's say the 2020 uh, Japan that he left to his successors, how was it different from 2012 when he came in? What What were some of the specific, to you, the leading policies that had changed?
1: To me, I think the leading policy that had changed was... Um... The uh, the fact that Abe really actually came up with the um uh, before uh, President Trump decided to call it call it and call it on his own idea, that the this concept of free and open Indo-Pacific. Mm-hmm. Um he was first of, uh he was among the first uh leader in the world who talked about Pacific Ocean and India, Indian Ocean as one geostrategic space. Um he under his government, Japan really made the shift from um I guess that Japan adjusted the way that it has it used. It's uh, kind of a decades old foreign policy tools, for example, ODA. Mm-hmm. It was primarily focused overseas development, overseas assistance. development assistance. Mm-hmm. Um, it has been um, it has been the a tool for Japan of, to really promote um, more of an indigenous economic development in the recipient countries, and it was very more of a good Samaritan based um, needs based, as they call it. Um, uh, provision of the official development assistance, but I think under Abe, Japan, Japanese government uh, us- usage of this particular scheme has become more strategic. Mm-hmm. So, for example, in a, in Southeast Asia, you, we did start to see Japanese government providing more of a capacity building in the area of a maritime uh, maritime security, a maritime domain awareness um, capacity building of a Coast Guard in the recipient countries so that so end goal is still stated End goal is still the same help the country to you know, help themselves, but then um, area in which Japan began to invest is um, increasingly more related to what we might call, you know, security, security realm which was definitely a new trend um, happened um, unfolding in, uh, under Abe and the trend that, you know frankly, I would argue it still continues.
0: So I, I'm going to turn actually to, um, to Shihoko in a second to actually ask about today and, and where Prime Minister Kishida is. But before we go, let me just um, get your assessment on some of the more granular um, changes that he made, uh, for example, to uh, the right of collective self-defense, to arms, uh, joint development and export. Can you just, you know, sort of briefly yeah. talk about some of those and how that was so different right. uh, from the era, you know, from the the fifties, the postwar era onward?
1: Right. So I think uh, this is this is there as we go as more granular it gets. Um, more revelation it has that although, you know, Abe attempted to leave that legacy of reorienting Japan's uh, foreign policy from more Japan-centric into Japan in the world-centric, more Mm -hmm. of a bigger context. But that's where I think um, where we might call, you know, rubber hits the road, where that's where I think his limitation is because actual specific policy changes that he was able to accomplish under his eight years, that is a long time. Uh, as a Japanese prime minister, um, is really actually more of a linear progression of the, uh, it, it's more linear, it's more step-by-step, step, and it's far more nuanced, nuanced than some of us actually thought he might go. So for instance, um, collective self-defense that uh, you mentioned, under his government, Japan did reinterpret um, Article 9 in the way that um, Japan is allowed to exercise that right of collective self-defense, which is in NATO's term, "attack for one is attack for all," um, on on the specific circumstances, and I think I believe it was a specific four circumstances. which was very different from what Abe set out to do, which is the wholesale revision or re- mm-hmm. reinterpretation of Article 9.
0: And we should know that Article 9 is the, the so called peace article in the peace constitution. Japan will not wage war, will not have a military, and, and the like.
1: So from that, from that perspective, Abe set out to reinterpret that Article 9 so that Japan can exercise right of collective self-defense anytime, anywhere. However, what he actually was able to accomplish was very um, direct, directly li- uh, linked to Japan's own national defense, and then in a very limited circumstances. So there's a gap already from what he articulated that he wanted to do versus what he was able to accomplish. Um, And then I guess another issue that I think, another area that I could point some progress is the uh, Japan's um, export of uh, defense uh, defense equipment and uh, defense technology. Uh, Prior to Abe, uh, for all intentions and purpose, Japan had the total embargo on all of those technologies and systems, um, it was it was never really legally bind, but the um, restriction was so stringent under the export control legal framework that uh, it was just essentially impossible to pull through any of those. Um, Abe set out to revise that and set out um, set set the new principle uh, for Japan's ability to export uh, defense technologies and uh, defense systems. But in reality, because of the decades-old practice and old de- old habits died hard dies hard, um, Japan's own defense industry wasn't really ready for that prime time. Mm-hmm. So even after the revision, you know Japan really was only able to score minor successes. And many of them is really not in the major, major weapon system, but more in the terms of um, more of a Coast Guard equipment or more of, a, I guess, um, lo- in um, the basically loaning the uh, secondhand uh, Decades-old self-defense forces equipment, which is about to be retired, onto let's say countries in Southeast Asia right. Right, for training and education purposes. Right. So those are again the uh, vision of uh, Japan's defense industry become more of a global competitor versus you know Japan has been able to accomplish so far.
0: Well, that's really interesting. Yeah, I was going to say the, the the gap that you're mentioning here. Is actually very interesting, and I think there's there's you know two ways usually people look at Abe either as you know sort of a dangerous nationalist and and he was going to rip up the constitution uh, or he's just you know praised you know to the skies as somebody who's completely overturned the old system, and so I think the um, the 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 vision that you gave in the beginning and then the caveats with it of, of what he was able to accomplish is actually it's actually quite interesting, which naturally raises the question of where are we today? So let me turn to Shihoko and ask about that, which is to say um, eight years is a very long time, as Yuki noted, in terms of the, uh, the Japanese political system. Abe uh, had a long time to do things. He didn't accomplish everything, um, but it also would have probably been very easy to unwind it all. So where do you see Japan today, Shihoko, under Kishida? Can you talk a little bit about Kishida's foreign policy, what he's been pursuing, uh, how much of it is, is related to what Abe was doing, or is it is it different?
2: Right. So I don't think we could stress enough the legacy of Abe on Japanese politics, especially in the foreign policy domain. Um, and it's going to be very difficult for Kishida to emerge from the shadow of Abe and and become a statesman in his own right. Of course, Kichida has the experience of being a foreign minister, uh, but he has really yet to come out and define Japan in his own terms. And I think one of the challenges he will have is to take some of the, um, the legacies of Abe and carry them forward, and at the same time, put his own um, stamp on the reality especially in light of the rapidly evolving situation in the the Indo-Pacific. And another challenge will also be to ensure that uh, Japan's interests are reflected even as Japan takes on an ever-growing role as a uh, unifier, a a regional stabilizer, especially in Asia. So we've already seen though um, Kishida moving forward as a statesman in his own right. And Most recently, we've seen him uh, host Biden in Tokyo for the first um, in-person bilateral meeting. First uh, meeting um, that uh, President Biden came to went to Japan for in person. At that meeting, um, was also the the Quad. Uh, meeting as well in person and the, the statements were strong, there was a lot of unity and I think this if there is any one message that came out of it, it is to say that at the bilateral level between the United States and Japan, at the quad level, uh, between the four countries, the United States, Japan, India, and Australia, there is a unity in understanding the precarious situation that the region finds itself, namely um, amid the growing threat of China, both from a security perspective and also from an economic perspective. And there is greater expectation for Japan to take on the mantle of not only as the definer of the um, Uh, of rules and and values um, in the Indo-Pacific, not just on economic issues, but more broadly on uh, the security front as well.
0: So, yeah, go ahead.
2: No, I I was also going to say, and one of the the ways that he's been able to do that in his short time in office is to carry on some of what Abe has done and really reach out to uh, Southeast Asia in particular, and he has made a concentrated effort to go uh, to the region, to Indonesia, Thailand, Vietnam, uh, Cambodia too, which is the ASEAN chair this year.
0: So uh, we're going to actually turn to Yuki uh, to talk about the Quad in a second, but I wanted to ask you, it was interesting that you you, you talked about the, Kishida's beginning uh, of an emergence. Um, what What are some of the things, you mentioned Southeast Asia, would you put Taiwan, for example, in he uh, is making his mark. He seems to have gone much farther than what even Abe was willing to say on Taiwan in terms of making it part of of uh, almost, I would say, Japan's first line of defense at this point, given uh, what what he's what he's talked about. W- would you put that in in the basket of him sort of putting his stamp on on strategy and foreign policy?
2: Absolutely. Um, it is interesting, though, that uh, Prime Minister, former Prime Minister Abe, even though he is ex officio, he really does continue to play quite a strong, a, a prominent role Um, in Japanese um, politics, not just on the domestic front, but also in foreign affairs as well, and Abe has really made many comments about Taiwan, and I think that Kishida too is carrying that, and certainly we are seeing coordinated efforts uh, collectively in support of at Taiwan and preserving the status quo in cross-strait relations. The other point I do want to make, though, um, as Kishida being his own man essentially, is that he is really trying to build a coalition uh, for collective economic security and having a more, um, you know, a for lack of a better way of expressing it, collective economic. Uh, defense mechanisms so that we have so what, what
0: does that mean what, can you talk a little bit about what that is
2: yeah so it's really kind of a deterrence so if there is no uh, you know there is no EU there is no NATO in in Asia and it's highly unlikely that such kind of formal uh, network is going to emerge but what we are seeing is this flourishing of various networks and partnerships and alliances uh, that are really geared towards um, trying to stave off China from essentially taking, um, uh, weaponizing, manipulating uh, the fact that the world is economically integrated. And so that an attack on one economy will be seen as an attack on all economies and that there is going to be repercussion and that uh, countries will actually uh, step up and work uh, collectively uh, to um, thwart the effort of Chinese um, coercion.
0: Is this deriving at all from what China's been doing to Australia for the past couple of years?
2: Absolutely. Australia, South Korea, you know, Japan with its rare earths a decade ago, these are all issues that are coming forward. Uh, China dominates uh, still in the rare earth market. We are seeing efforts by Japan, by Australia, as well as the United States to really wean themselves off uh, from Chinese rare earths. It is making headway, but it is still, um, the Chinese still dominate that. So there are efforts to, to um, ensure that there are mechanisms to, to work collectively on that. What we are also seeing is uh, the vulnerability too of greater economic integration outside of just the uh, Chinese economic coercion. We saw that with COVID, uh, we saw that with unexpected disruptions to the global supply chains, and we are seeing efforts to work more closely together, share data, share information, and perhaps have a better way of preempting or dealing with those unexpected uh, crises as well.
0: So, so has anything concrete come out of that yet? Is there, are there any concrete agreements? I mean, I know some uh, at the uh, during the end of the Trump period, we're talking about an economic Article Five. Article Five being the sort of collective self-defense uh, article that's in treaties, so that you know, again, if one country were economically uh, targeted by any country, then other countries would step in to help it. Um, you know by the, by the goods that were now being, for example, boycotted. Um, has anything specific come out of this or is it just still just talk?
2: Yeah, well, I, I think what Japan, Japan plays a critical role in this. Um, it has, of course, um, ensured that TPP did not die with the withdrawal of the United States and that CPTPP actually not only uh, came to the finish line but actually is, is in the midst of expansion. Uh, as well, the Kishida government's challenge, of course, is to ensure that uh, there is an orderly way to deal with applications for membership to CPTPP uh, at a time when both China as well as Taiwan are uh, seeking accession. Um, there is the challenge of meeting that, as well as South Korea and the United Kingdom uh, seeking membership as well. Um, another specific issue that is coming ha- that has come up is the White House's own economic um, initiative, the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework that has just been released um, at the uh, the Tokyo meeting last month. Japan was instrumental in ensuring that IPEF membership extended uh, beyond the obvious uh, member countries and included um, Southeast Asian countries as well as countries like India And so we are seeing this common um, understanding of the risks to the global economy. We are coming to a greater understanding of the risks that China poses. Um, The challenge and expectation for Kishida now is for Japan to keep it together, uh, make sure that they're they're not just simply ideas um, and that they are actually implemented with a specific roadmap.
0: So Yuki um, Shoko has been talking a lot. She's introduced this uh, this idea of the multilateralism uh, in the region. Um, obviously, that's been going on for decades under, for example, ASEAN, uh, the uh, East Asian Summit, and and the like. Um, but there are some new uh, there are some new initiatives and and some things that uh, either have been revived or are are completely new and and may or may not be uh, game changers or or somewhat of a game changer. Uh, The two that come to mind the most, in addition to the CPTPP, the Comprehensive and Progressive Trans-Pacific Partnership that Shihoko mentioned, are the Quad and AUKUS. Uh, Obviously, Japan's a member of the Quad. It's not a member of AUKUS. But um, first of all, let's talk about your sense of the prospects for the Quad. Um, And I'll pose the same question to you that I posed to Shihoko. Has the Quad really accomplished anything yet? Is it more of of a talk shop? Does it have Truly specific and achievable goals that are are significant and material that it is aiming towards, uh, and and where is it going to go? And then after that, we'll we'll talk about AUKUS.
1: Great question. Um, before before I answer your question, I think um, listening to uh, listening to uh, Shihoko's uh, description of uh, where Shira is going and uh, his attempt to be his own man in her words. Um, I read um, Prime Minister Kishida's uh, speech, a Shangri-La dialogue, very, very interesting. Um, there, I think he, this is this is a speech, I think, um, looking back, I think he really started to put himself forward. And uh, he talked about uh, uh, five five principles that, that he coined as a Kishida vision for peace. But if you look at his actual speech, he's obviously pushing back to some of the item that the Abe now outside the government has been pushing. So one thing that I thought was particularly interesting was where he talked about even though he, so in the last uh, several months, especially since the uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine started, you know, Prime Minister former Prime Minister Abe has been very um, vocal ex-officio you know, he talked about, um, he he wrote and talked about uh, Japan's, Japan's need to um, up the defense, double the defense budget to 2% of GDP, you know, make it the NATO equivalent. He even played the thought of maybe Japan should uh, push U.S. to engage in talks about nuclear sharing. Um, he also pushed uh, Kishida government to really consider Japan uh, Japan acquiring uh, what what they call counterattack capability. So if you have that, those you know Abe's at, um, at ballooning those ideas in mind. Kishida um, does talk about all of those issues, but two percent of GDP completely dropped from this uh, speech. Mm. He talked about de- um, increasing the defense budget over the next five years to the appropriate level. So he does strongly hint that Japan will go over their um, go you know go over their traditional one percent, but two percent uh, commitment that uh, Abe was really pushing Kishida, Kishida to um, articulate got dropped. And what was interesting was even though he talks about, and this is a repeated theme that he talks to everybody in his uh, leaders summit, uh, President Biden, he talked about it. And um, the uh, in, certainly in this uh, conference, he talked about it. He did talk about fundamental reorientation and the strengthening of Japan's uh, defense capability. However, um, he also says those, ish, those uh, enhancement of those uh, enhancement of those capabilities will be will be done without changing the current Japan's uh, Japan's uh, status as a peace peace nation it will be done within its own constitution existing constitution within international law he will not uh, Japan under him will not seek the drastic reorientation of roles role sharing between United States and uh, with United States under the alliance so those those are all basically he's reject almost you know rejecting everything that the Japan um, Abe pushed Akshida to consider oh, that's interesting. so mm-hmm. even though he keeps talking you know he so that I thought was very interesting that where and then how he upped the priority um, that he attaches to to Japan's uh, revitalized effort for nuclear disarmament, uh, which is understandable uh, for someone like him who is from a Hiroshima Prefecture, who which did suffer um, atomic bomb. So I thought that Shangri-La speech was very, 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 very interesting. let I mean, that's uh,
0: you, you. I have not since it just happened a few days ago. I actually haven't read it yet, and so you are you've uh, certainly forced me to, um, to to pull it up and <laughs> I'll read it, it re- as soon as possible. Yeah, and then
1: if you look into the granular of that speech, that's um, you can really see him balancing and basically inheriting some of the uh, foreign policy um, initiative that Abe launched, such as free and open Indo Pacific, but yet he does push back on some mm-hmm. other agenda that Abe put out on the table. So I think to, I, I really read that speech as, as him really trying to um, step out of um, the role of a former Abe, uh, for you know, Abe. Prime Minister Abe is a former foreign minister to Prime Minister Kishida himself. So, so
0: let me then bring you back, though, to, um, to Quad and, and ask you about yes, your sense of, absolutely. of where Quad is, whether it's actually achieving anything. And,
1: and yeah. given
0: what you've just said, you know, how Kishida might push and pursue Quad.
1: So I think uh, Quad uh, is definitely one of those, uh, one of those uh, foreign policy, policy initiatives that Kishida's, Kishida regards as uh, um, inheritable. And the reason is that um, that framework can be more effective in the uh, non-kinetic, non-security area than more of a hard defense corporation, and I'm going to sparse that out a little bit. So the um, par- partnership and a cooperative relations between those four countries, U.S., Japan, Australia, Austria, and India, on non-security issues, such as let's talk about supply chain supply chain resiliency, let's talk about um, vaccine development, you know, vaccine production um, and the distribution when the next pandemic happens. Let's talk about uh, concerted effort on public health. Let's talk about the concerted effort on uh, climate change. There are, I think, more uh, potentially. Um, more potentials in achieving something concrete, whether that may be a joint investment project in a certain, you know, joint investment project in a certain pharmaceutical technology, joint investment, you know, joint, um, joint uh, effort in creating the, uh, creating the uh, mega data for, you know, public health officials can tap into, you know, things like that as opposed to hard security issues. Because when it comes to that, um, India will remain as an outlier because of its geographic location, not just its geographic location, but it's very complicated relationship with China, um, which India does share land border with. So there is a different type of relationship that Japan has with China or U.S. with China or Australia with China. We're all having relationship with China across the vast ocean, but India does have Japan, uh, China at their back door. So that brings uh, inherently, I think, bring a qualitative difference and complexity into how India will always position itself. And just because of also um, India, India's foreign policy principle has always anchored in a multi-directional diplomacy, and we really see it, um, see it coming out clear when India is not quite with... Japan, Australia, and United States in its condemnation of Russian behavior in its Ukraine. So you can already you can see when you when you keep pushing on hard security, you would immediately stumble onto those blocks. So I think I see Quad as more productive, more um, beneficial framework for all four countries if they pursue the other side of the ledger, which is more of an economic and uh, uh, safeguarding the advanced technologies and you know those areas. So
0: interestingly. There is another new grouping which which focuses more on the security. As you're talking about Quad, focusing right, AUKUS. Quad focusing on the non-security <laughs> side. Uh, although they they do talk about uh, you know they talk about space and they talk about cyber and they've talked about some of the traditional security issues. But in general, I think I think you're right. But then there's AUKUS, the Australia Australia UK US agreement, which mm-hmm. began with an agreement to provide nuclear powered submarines to Australia, but in the latest uh, AUKUS uh, statement, leader statement that came out in April, really expanded far beyond that to talk about hypersonics and counter hypersonics, talk about quantum computing, uh, talk about space. Um, And Japan's not part of that. So should Japan join AUKUS? Can Japan join AUKUS? Have you heard about any talk in Japan about interest in joining AUKUS? Would it make sense? How do you see AUKUS?
1: So I think um, for AUKUS, um, this, uh, the debate of whether Japan should uh, join AUKUS, that to me, it's a parallel of should Japan join Five mm-hmm. Eyes, which is the intelligence um, sharing Between framework the US that and its closest anchors in US, U.S. and its closest allies, which Japan is not right. a part of. And uh, there's always the, there's always the side of the debate where Japan should be part of it, but then there's another side of the debate saying, no, Japan doesn't necessarily have to be part of it, but still, con- but continue to contribute and benefit from it. Um, the way I see AUKUS in Japan is um, because the AUKUS, whatever the other things they said, it really started, it began as the uh, defense industrial conglomerate mm-hmm. between US, UK, and Australia. And US, UK kind of pulling Australia ahead um uh, in order to join them join that framework and, and i think uh, it would be helpful for japan's defense industry to be able to join that framework for example um, in order for japan to maintain its uh, resilience and it's the uh, indigenous defense defense industrial base um, steps that japan might have japan's industrial Japanese industry may have to take to be on par when it comes to industrial security and safeguarding, safeguarding uh, some of the technology, technical information and uh, basically controlling, you know, basically controlling access to those technologies and so forth. The step that Japanese defense industry has to um, take to get get there to be on par with US-UK Australia uh, shareable level maybe 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 kind of a I don't want to say bridge too far because I think defense Japanese defense industry needs to be ambitious but it's it doesn't happen um, night and day I think it's a more of a midterm project mm-hmm. and then I think at the end of the day um, I do think there are there are areas where Japan Japanese industry can contribute but then oddly enough all those niche technology that Japan actually leads any of those countries don't live in defense space. Right. They all live in civilian space. So I think it it is really um, the key what what's really the key is Japan's industry as a whole can get there when it comes to safeguarding its technology and you know no backdoor to Chinese side, you know Chinese company and you know things in Chinese subsidiaries and things like that and that I think is going to take a little bit of time to untangle Mm -hmm. and at the end of the day if Japan can get there I I do think uh, there's a lot that Japan can offer and I think it can be a mutually beneficial um, relationship so I think uh, it does make at that point I think it makes Japan it makes sense for Japan interesting But but not in the short term because Japan is re- Japan has so many more hurt, um, um, hoops that um, it needs to jump okay. through.
0: Um, so we've, we've actually spent a, a good deal of time talking about these multilateral uh, approaches and multilateral uh, initiatives and institutions. But Japan still has bilateral relations. And so, Shihoko, I'd like to turn to you to give a, a, an overview of those bilateral relations. Um, uh, there's a new leader, obviously, uh, Prime Minister Kishida himself is is relatively new, um, but there's a brand new leader in South Korea, um, and he's, he's uh, from the Conservative Party. He has indicated more interest in working with Japan. Um, how do you see the potential for uh, Japan-ROK uh, relations going forward? Um, there's the PRC. Uh, of course, uh, there is Taiwan, and, and we've already talked a little bit about Taiwan, but not on a bilateral nature. And then finally, there's the U.S. So can you sort of go over some of these bilateral relationships and talk about where Japan is and, and where you see things going? Right.
2: Well, that, that's a lot of bilaterals to cover, but let me, on, let me focus on a couple Uh, that you've raised. I think the first one with um, the election of President Yoon and Japan's relations with South Korea, that is something that is of great interest to Washington for relations to be repaired. Um, There is cautious optimism in Tokyo, but there is also quite frankly a lot of Korea fatigue as well. Uh, There is this kind of deja vu all over again sense insofar as The Korean presidency comes in five year cycles. Um, There is um, usually a a high point at the beginning of a Korean administration expectations for um, Seoul and uh, Tokyo to work more closely together. And by the end of the five years, uh, that has rapidly reached a a low and that has certainly been the case under President Moon Jae-in. Uh, President Yoon, of course, is a relatively, not just a newcomer to as a president, but as an elected um, political, uh, as an elected politician as well. He is a prosecutor um, by by training and by profession. And so he comes at it um, with a more pragmatic approach. Um, And he is possibly uh, more willing to listen to non-politicians uh certainly take guidance from the foreign ministry and there is a hope Um, we've already seen that korea is uh is sending a a japan uh japan focused uh ambassador to represent korea in tokyo and and that's certainly a a good sign on that front but when you talk to koreans um, and you look at the political um, landscape of korea it's not enough Uh, to simply talk about um, better relations at the the top level, at the ministerial level, um, at the elected politicians level. Um, There is, um, it's going to be difficult um, to let go of that kind of hostility uh, for a number of reasons. Uh, But one of the issues I hope um, will be resolved is for Korea to uh, stave off from acting on uh, seizing assets of Japanese um, companies uh, based in Korea in compensation for wartime labor uh, during uh, Korean occupation in the early 20th century. Uh, But that uh, is of course something that is not determined by the foreign ministry, that is up to the court system and the district courts in particular of Korea. Um, so that will be very difficult to, to manage. Um, another issue, of course, on the Japanese side is for Japan to lift uh, some of the export restrictions on the three of critical um, minerals that are used uh, for semiconductors that are exported to Korea. Uh, the lifting of that, the timing of that, that is going to be very difficult to navigate. Uh, but certainly lifting of those issues on both sides will be a concrete step uh, where we could see tangible, uh, not just detente, but a, a move forward uh, to, to work more closely together. Um, when it comes, um, I'm going to leave China to, to Yuki. Um, and I'm going to actually turn to the issue of the United States uh, okay. because the, that is going to be the biggest challenge um, for, for Tokyo moving forward as much as it is um, to deal with with the China threat. Um, We have the midterm elections coming up in the United States. We have another presidential election coming up uh, two years after that. Um, The Japanese uh, um, had been um, supportive of uh, some of Trump's uh, more strong position against China. And they had been worried about um, uh, Biden actually backtracking from that. Uh, That has actually not happened. So that has been welcomed by Tokyo. But at the same time, now we find ourselves in a a place where the US political scene is so polarized. And it is not easy to understand what uh, the US uh, policy towards China currently is and how it may evolve. So that is going to be a, a great concern for the Kishida administration as it tries to to kind of uphold some of the very values that the United States itself um, espouses. And I just want to add one thing about Kishida himself. He's actually quite values driven. Uh, Yuki mentioned that he is from Hiroshima, and I think that really does uh, play up to his political compass a great deal. Um, and he's brought up this idea of new capitalism um, and kind of really dealing with the social dimension of the disruptions caused by economic dislocation caused by the pandemic um, and uh, a greater emphasis on profitability um, over kind of a harmonization or investing in communities. And I think this is going to be something that he's going to continue to hold on to. Uh, he does see eye to eye with Biden on that. Um, it will be something that he will want the United States to consider. And he does see himself as a champion of promoting uh, new economic values and values uh, that are needed a third way, um, so to speak, for growth. Um, in an increasingly um, destabilized
0: um, economy. Interesting. Well, we'll we'll certainly have to keep an eye uh, on that. That's actually not something I've heard too many people talk about. So that's another facet uh, in addition to what Yuki was mentioning in in terms of his Shangri-La speech. So um, before we wrap up then, uh, Yuki, do you want to um, give us your sense of uh, where Japan and China are and, and where they may be going?
1: Well, Japan and China is indeed an interesting one. Um, Before um, Russian invasion of Ukraine and uh, Taiwan, um, so in this one, um, I think Russian invasion of Ukraine really, um, really um, impacted the dynamics of it. And then also not to mention um, Chinese uh, increasing pressure on Taiwan and uh, increasing aggressive behavior around Taiwan certainly does it too. But then Russian invasion aggravates it. I think before then, even under Prime Minister Abe, um, Japan was seeking to stabilize uh, its relations with Beijing so that um, it doesn't have to be friendly, but it's not—at least it's not openly hostile. And uh, open—it um, can be competitive. But it's not overly so to the extent of um, alienating China, Um, Japanese economy and Chinese economy are still very closely intertwined. And there comes comes Japan's challenge, especially when if um, Japan's technological edge doesn't live in a defense space, how do do you deal with that um, when the rest of the economy is so much much closely um, linked with uh, China? So, because of that rea- economic reality, um, Japan under Abe was um, seeking ways to stabilize this relationship, so that at least it could have a um, some kind of a some kind of a constructive relationship, that stable relationship. Uh, Japan under Abe hosted the J- um, Japan-China-Korea summit, mm-hmm. and it was during that summit, um, J- uh, Yan Jiechi came to Japan and talked about. Um, back to normal when it comes to Japan and China and at least start the you know, process of it. But I think um, I think at this moment um, drastic dramatic improvement of a Japan's relationship with China is very slim, giving um, China, not only a Chinese uh, increasingly aggressive behavior, um, East China Sea, Taiwan, but then also Ch- South China Sea, but then also um, Chinese position on the, um, where China stands on the uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine. It really goes directly against what uh, Prime Minister Kishida has been touting for, which is more of a value-based diplomacy, and put um, Japan as the defend- defender of those international ba- value at the premium. So I don't, I don't, see a rapid deterioration of japan-china relations and the only reason i say that is it's pretty cool already that there is not much more other than some you know china tries something kinetic around japanese waters that could um drive the uh, relationship uh, further well down. and that's
0: something we haven't we haven't talked about we save for the next time which is the continued incursions into the senkakus. Um, the, the it's, it's, it's a continuous pressure, um, and of course, as long as that's happening, you have the possibility of accident and miscalculation that could cause a kinetic encounter between Japan, uh, and China. But we'll we'll save that for next time. But final, final question for both of you, uh, just very briefly. So, obviously, you know, we're all Japanologists, and we've we've been in Washington uh, a long time. Uh, and it's been a long time of, of folks in Washington as well as around the country focusing on China. Obviously, the nature of that relationship uh, has changed. The tenor of the relationship uh, has changed over the past um, about half decade or so. Do you see do you have any uh, belief that this will will result in a renaissance for Japan? amongst Americans uh, or in Washington, the idea that here's a country, critical country, still the world's third largest economy, um, but that is an ally and that's not threatening and so on and so forth. Or is that we're just, you know, you're never going to get back to the days where Americans uh, looked at Japan or, or they looked at Japan both positively and negatively, but they were fascinated with Japan. Do, do you see any indications that Americans may turn back to, to be thinking about Japan because the hopes and dreams of the China relationship have, have really, in many ways, um, been been swept away. So either of you, just just a, a brief thought.
1: I think, um, if anything, rather than renaissance, I think a rediscovery of Japan, maybe a rediscovery, uh, I rediscovery. Like that. Because um, if you look around, if you're in the states, um, we wouldn't even blink and think about. Um, going to have sushi you know everywhere you go you now have sushi restaurant whether that's authentically Japanese or not totally beside the point but the words like you know manga anime you know sushi karaoke um, Pokemon I think more coming from the soft culture but then so much of Japanese culture is much more um, much more integral part of American life and especially Mm -hmm. life of American youth that if you start recounting stuff that are Japanese that we have readily available around us, um, after this initial fascination of China phase and you look around and you count something that's Japanese, you'll be surprised. There are so much more. That's so I would I would just call it as a rediscovery of
0: Japan. A rediscovery, Shihoko, what do you think?
1: Yeah, so I think expectations
2: for Japan to be the regional stabilizer and a stabilizer of Uh, the world order um, is on the rise. Um, And I think that um, it, quite frankly, Japan is currently the third largest economy, but by any estimate, that position is going to continue to slide. But that should not be um, something that uh, decreases the value of of Japan uh, to uh, step up to the plate and and kind of deliver on the needs of cross-border issues and right now that is about providing political stability i think what abe has done is given japan greater confidence in stepping into that role of playing um to play that role uh, that goes beyond its borders no other country in asia is doing that even china even though it is this huge behemoth It really does act solely in its self-interest. Japan has this uh, greater global vision. It thinks about cross-border concerns. It wants to work um, on um, issues like immediate issues like COVID. It does want to provide um, effective development assistance rather than some uh, simply exploitive um, aid right? So there is this expectation for Japan to do more. Uh, there is greater confidence in Japan. Um, I think when it comes to soft power, Japan's kind of losing it compared to Korea right now. Japan does not have BTS. Um, right. Japan, uh, <laughs> the, the whole cosmetic industry of Korea is really quite exceptional. But um, that said, I, I think there is this Thing. when when we take polls about Japan, most countries have a, quite a favorable view of Japan. I do think the time for Tokyo to really leverage that has come.
0: Well, that's great. Uh, I appreciate um, the, the thoughts that, that you both have given on a whole range of issues. And it, it was just really, um, and we didn't talk domestic, we didn't talk domestic economy and, and, and issues and problems and opportunities, but certainly there is so much going on on the foreign policy side that quite frankly a lot of people may not um be be thinking about so uh this was really outstanding uh i appreciate both of you taking time uh to join me so again yuki tatsumi uh of uh the stimson center and shioko goto of the wilson center thank you for joining me on the pacific century
2: thank you thank you
0: so you've been listening to The Pacific Century. Uh, Misha Auslan, your host, and we look forward to having you join us next time. Bye-bye. Bye.
2: This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work or to listen to more of our podcasts or watch our videos,
1: please visit hoover.org.